New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. During the past century, individuals, newspapers, and military agencies have recorded thousands of UFO incidents, giving rise to much speculation about flying saucers, visitors from other planets, and alien abductions. Yet the extraterrestrial phenomenon did not begin in the present era, far from it. This fascinating and provocative story serves as the focus for this edition of New Dimensions with our guest, Jacques Vallée. Jacques Vallée is one of today's most widely respected researchers of unexplained aerial phenomena. He earned a master's degree in astrophysics while living in France and holds a PhD in computer science from Northwestern University. His life experience was the model portrayed by Francois Truffaut in the Steven Spielberg award-winning film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He's the author of numerous books, including the seminal work Passport to Magonia and the co-author with Chris Albeck of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times. Join us for the next hour as we explore the mystery of UFOs with our guest, Jacques Vallée. My name is Michael Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jacques, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's yes. great to be uh, here again. Yes, for sure. It's nice to have you again. We've been doing this over the years for some time now. Um, I'd like to start with, uh, in the in the in the... In the forward to the book, uh, which was written by Professor Hufford, uh, he talked about traveling to Newfoundland, Canada, and spending four years up there, um, where he basically was studying folklore. He was doing a dissertation on folklore. And he discovered, he kind of ran into a number of things. Uh, He's doing field work for his doctorate dissertation, and, you know, ghost ships, uh, Folk beliefs, uh, Jackie Lanterns, uh, weather lights, uh, the old hag, the bedroom invaders. Can we talk about that? It's just what that means. Well, you, you mentioned uh, my book, Passport to Magonia, which yes. was published 40 years ago, I'm afraid. And in, uh, as you may know, when I started approaching that kind of um, uh, unexplained uh, phenomena, uh, especially the uh, the UFO phenomenon. Uh, my first, like many people, my first impression was that we were dealing with aliens from outer space. I mean, the extraterrestrial explanation is is the first one that comes to mind. And my first two books, in fact, you know, explored that in the back in the sixties. And then I thought, well, in science, you have to ask. When you're confronted with a new phenomenon, you should ask, 
well, is it really new or was it there before in some other form? And when did it actually start? And so I started going back into folklore, just like uh, Dr. Harford has done, and uh, re re-examining the, the whole issue of where folklore comes from. Does it is it just old wives' tales and you know fairy tales that we tell the kids to put them to sleep? Yes. Or is there is it based on something else in the popular culture that has been kept secret or has been kept uh, just among you know among the local population that but hasn't made it to the academic community hasn't made it in print anywhere and reemerges because of the censorship of the church or the censorship of the scientists reemerges in the popular culture through other forms so that's what i i did in passport to magonia and that's very much what professor hafford uh, you know had done with uh, newfoundland and with popular cultures in uh, you know in those regions yes. and the, the, i met him at SLN and we had a long discussion about that because he had been influenced by passport to magonia when he was doing his dissertation and the the question is can we just take these phenomena as can we just treat them the way the folklore people and the anthropologists are you know uh, treating them just like you know, specimens to put under a microscope and study in the laboratory, or is there a human reality under there that we haven't seen, that really we haven't done justice to? Yes. Uh, let's talk about the old hag and, and, and it just, uh, the paralyzed sleep also. This has to do with paralysis of sleep. And can you talk about that? The um, range of um, stories that he was listening to and recording recording had to do with um, what the ufologists describe as bedroom visitations. The, the feeling of being paralyzed and the feeling that uh, beings are with you in the room. And of course, the uh, modern day ufologists like to hypnotize these people and sort of influence them to make a link to extraterrestrial visitors, which, in my opinion, is is very far-fetched. I mean, or at least not proven, especially when hypnosis is used under those conditions. So I think that's that's not the right right way to do it. What uh, Dr. Hufford was doing was looking for patterns within those stories, and and as you may know, remembering Passport to Magonia, those go way back to medieval stories about incubi and succubi and, you know, beings coming in. And the whole issue, of course, which ties back to the modern, you know, UFO problem is to what extent can this be explained as physiological, you know, dreamlike experiences, hypnagogic experiences and so on? And to what extent is it real? It, it is certainly real to the people involved. And uh, here we we deal with the, the, the border between what we, you know, the consensus reality and something else. And uh, that, that entire border is very, obviously very interesting to explore. I mean, here we're asking basic questions about consciousness. Yes. The, um, 
and the anomalies. Anomalies are a threat to the status quo. Let's talk about that. Why are anomalies a threat to the status quo? Um, Anomalies are a threat to the status quo in science, but they are more of an annoyance, but they're also the source, of course, of new knowledge. Um, I think it is Einstein who said that there there could be no science without anomalies. Um, if if scientists did nothing more than just verify the, you know, the existing laws of science, it wouldn't be much fun to do science. What's what's interesting in science is when you think you're going to repeat an experiment or verify something, and then something unusual happens. You know, the discovery of radioactivity, the discovery of new planets, the uh, discovery of the redshift. I mean, those were all unusual. You know, anomalies that happen. Only those were okay to some extent because they happened in the lab. They happened to, you know, in the course of recording of experiments and so on. So people could disagree about what it meant, but it, they happened within the culture of academic science. The problem with this phenomenon is that it doesn't happen in the lab. It, it happens in the fields. It happens to people who have no contact with the university or with science. And they have a, a, a personal experience, which very often is very traumatic, life-changing, and they don't have anybody to talk to. And that's where, of course, where the problem begins. The, um, one of the books that the, the, the Bud Hopkins... Uh, John Mack, uh, there was another book that they wrote about interviews with various people who had experienced these things. What is your view of that book? I have, well, I, I believe that the, the abduction experiences in general are real. They are very interesting, very important to study. And in fact, in our book, and Wonders in the Sky, there are a number of, number of abduction cases yes. going back to medieval times. The the problem I have with uh, the current view of abductions, the, the reason I've stayed away from it, is that from what I learn when I talk to psychiatrists, when I talk to experienced uh, psychologists, hypnosis is not the way to study this phenomenon. Uh, if you remember the book um, by uh, Lindner, by Dr. Lindner, um, about the, uh, you know, there's a chapter in his book. The book is called The 50-Minute Hour. It's a book of his memoirs of being a psychiatrist and the the psychiatric interview where he gathered about 10 of his most extraordinary cases during his career. And there is one one story there about a uh, a scientist who had the the strong uh, sort of uh, life-changing pattern of traveling, you know, his consciousness traveling in space throughout the galaxy. And Lindner explains very, very clearly why he decided not to use hypnosis, because he thought hypnosis would would make this delusion, which he thought was a delusion, would make it a reality. And that, uh, and, you know, I have many letters from people who have been hypnotized as abductees uh, whose lives have been... Uh, really uh, deteriorated as a result of the experience, and now they want to be re-hypnotized to get out of the tragedy that this has 
you know, thrown them into. And there is no way to re-hypnotize them because you'd go back to the first hypnosis in which a lot of leading questions were forced on them, getting them to admit that they had met extraterrestrials when the experience very often had nothing to do with extraterrestrials. So there is a confusion here which is very dangerous and um, I think we are, that's a wrong method to, to study the problem. But there is a real problem. One of the most, world's most famous scientists, Stephen Hawking, he basically discounted the UFO phenomenon. said, forget UFOs, they don't exist. Well, he said more than that. He said, and, you know, Stephen Hawking is obviously one of the leading cosmologists today, you know, highly respected astronomer, astrophysicist. Um, he shouldn't speak about areas where he's has done no personal research. And uh, what, what he actually said was that if there were UFOs coming here, why would they only uh, land in front of crackpots? And weirdos. <laughs> and weirdos. And uh, I think that uh, maybe I should send him our book. Uh, he would see that, in fact, in the 17th and 18th century, many of the people who saw and reported unexplained aerial phenomena were astronomers. You know, Cassini, director of Paris Observatory, Lagrange, you know, uh, the, the Lagrange points between the Earth and the Moon are named after him. Uh, Messier, you know, the discoverer of what we now n know as galaxies, you know, the M, you know, M81 and so on. The, yes. uh, the M goes for Messier. Uh, all these people, Arago, you know, described unexplained aerial objects. We're going to continue our conversation with Jacques Vallée the author of Wonders in the Sky with Chris Albeck, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website, jacquesvillet.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. And Vallet is V-A-L-L-E. -L -L -E. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Yes, is Jacques Vallée. He's the author, along with Chris Aubeck, of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times. And Jacques, there's so many, one, so many incredible stories and accounts. And you can open up the book at any one place and just find so many different kinds of things. One, one particular one that got me was the fourth, in the year 438 in Constantinople. Uh, they had suffered an earthquake and then fire and pestilence were... Uh, spreading uh, after the earthquake, and and there was this phenomena of a child being lifted up into the 
into the heavens. Can you talk about that that one particularly? Well, it's interesting because it's an early. It's interesting for two reasons. First, it's an early report that today would have to be classified as an abduction. You know, the a child being taken up to a place where he meets. Know, creatures that he takes to be angels and hears their language or their singing. The Lord and, the and, choir. The, and that may be the interpretation then, yes. you know, by the church when he when when he told that story. There were many witnesses there. What what's interesting also is how that kind of story gets comes to us. Because one of the reactions by, you know, many of our friends in ufology when I published Passport to Magonia was well, uh, Valet has gone off the deep end, you know. Obviously, these are, you know, real spaceships, and he's bringing in all these stories about elves and fairies and goblins and leprechauns and demons and has nothing to do with UFOs. And it's all vague folklore. Well, this is not vague folklore. The reason it came to us was that the the incidents, the reports were so were felt to be so important that they were recorded at the time by historians, by the church, inscribed in the archives. This particular case is mentioned every year in the uh, in the Greek, you know, uh, Orthodox religion uh, archives. The, the church, and, yeah. and the um, in Rome, for example, the, we have a number of cases that come from the Roman Empire. The consuls demanded to have a report every year on any unusual or unexplained thing in the sky. Now, this is like, you know, if Barack Obama called the Air Force and said, I demand to have a report, you know, every quarter on my desk on all the UFOs in the United States. Uh, the uh, These records, of course, were very important to them for astrological reasons, that they thought that uh, unusual things in the sky might be portents, might announce the fall of empires, the death of kings, you know, battles and so on. They, uh, some of them have been lost, but we have access to a lot of them through historians who copied this into their own books. So a lot of it has been reconstructed. And uh, those are not necessarily, you know, unexplained UFOs by our standards. Many of them were meteors, comets, and so on, and those are very important to astronomers, because you want to know, you know, what were the, the first recorded observations of Halley's Comet, for example, and you find it in those records. So it's a treasure trove of astronomical, you know, and meteorological phenomena. But a number of those things are unexplained. And so uh, Chris, uh, Chris Solbeck is a, a young Englishman who lives in Madrid in Spain. He contacted me um, about Magonia, saying that he was going over the old records again, that he had a very large collection of pre-1947 UFO cases, and that um, he was uh, proposing that we work together to publish this in some way. The first idea was to publish it on the internet. And of course, this book would be impossible if it weren't for the internet, because there's such an, a, a large amount of material, and we needed um, help from a number of scholars in different fields. 
um, the many of the material, uh, you know, the cases come from Latin America, from Russia, from Germany, from Egypt. Uh, we are not you know, scholars of those different cultures, and the uh, so we, uh, Chris had assembled a group of about ten ten people including people working in museums and libraries and people who had large archives of their own. And we merged our databases, and then we started going through through all that. And uh, it took six years. Nobody got paid. <laughs> uh, one of the things about the Internet, of course, uh, that, that that's important, is that many museums and many uh, newspapers are scanning their entire collections and putting them online. So you you need access to specialized search engines because Google doesn't speak, you know, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics yet. But uh, if you have access to the right experts, the right scholars, you can begin to go back to the original sources. So um, a lot of the stuff that was in the UFO literature before, we found to be... Uh, exaggeration or an error. You know, ufologists like to say, um, you know, two discs were seen uh, flying over London in 1650. And when you go back to the original, it, it doesn't say anything about a disc. It says there were two lights over London. Those lights could be, you know, could be meteors, could be almost anything. So uh, we, we had to go back and uh, sort of, um, you know, clean up those records. And uh, we ended up, after rejecting a lot of material, we ended up with 500 cases before 1879. We wanted to stop uh, before there were uh, you know, uh, dirigibles and airplanes in the sky. Uh, there was no CIA before 1879. Uh, there were no, you know, no dirigibles uh, you know, there were a few balloons, a few free balloons and uh, a few manned balloons, but they were very, very few and people knew where they were and where they were going. Uh, so the, uh, obviously we cover, you know, from antiquity to 1879 uh, through very different cultures and very different changes in culture and changes in communication technique the invention of the printing press, the invention of the telegraph. So we've been careful to segment the book into sections where before and after every century, we give a sort of capsule account, you know, a prologue and an epilogue about what the culture was at the time, what had been discovered, what science was doing. And it's fascinating to see this problem through the the filter of the, the the history of mankind, actually, and what's fascinating also is to find that at the end, of course, you know me, I'm a database guy. You know, I, I my background is in computer science, yes. and I wanted to see what kind of statistics this would you know, lead to, and you find all the patterns that we're familiar with in terms of modern UFOs. So essentially, we're led, we, we don't propose any hypothesis, you know, in the, in the book. Uh, we think it's very early still in that research. We see the book as the beginning of something. 
we want to use it to call attention of, you know, Japanese scholars, Chinese scholars, uh, areas where we know there must be records that we have no access to. So we'd like these people to now be inspired to go into their libraries and do the same thing we've been doing and maybe do a new edition of uh, of the book if, you know, if Tarcher will, uh, will let us in a, in a few years, that will be expanded. But already... You can see that the, the the patterns. Essentially, we we're dealing with a phenomenon that has been with us throughout history, whatever it is. If for a while there was there was the uh, the Air Force, the Condon Report, uh, which was put out by the Air Force, uh, and this kind of basically dismissed UFOs across the board. And that report was around. Then there was, before that, there was. I think was it uh, Major Donald Kehoe? He had done a, he had done some publishing in this area and so forth. Um, and so, is the what do you think of what, what, where's the Condon report now? Where is that? Well, the the Condon report dismissed the the subject only for the academic community and for the government. Essentially, the uh, it was a disgrace. I mean, it's a disgrace on the part of the. The Air Force wanted to get rid of the problem, and they had other things to do. They felt, perhaps rightly at the time, that UFOs were not a threat compared to the other things that were going on in the world. Yes. So they they really were tired of uh, you know having to defend themselves and trying to explain something that where well, they were not really equipped to do good research. So they wanted to get rid of it. And the, the, the Condon report was a whitewash. Um, the, uh, and as you may remember, uh, Dr. Heineck and I were the first scientists who briefed yeah. the, the Condon study. At the beginning, it looked like they were going to do real research, and then it quickly deteriorated. And uh, Condon himself admitted that he had no intention of, uh, that he really didn't believe from the beginning that there was anything to the problem. And it was a complete fiasco. The What you have to ask is, why did the New York Times, you know, endorse it so heavily? And, and why did the Academy of Sciences, uh, you know, put its stamp on something like that, which was, was essentially a hoax? In many cases, I mean, the media has had a big impact on, with respect to UFOs. And uh, I mean, I think just recently there was this whole uh, thing that occurred in South America, I think, that this, where well, they had uh, UFOs no, appearing over Rio. Uh, well, reports continue, you know, all over the world. Very often they are not picked up by the media anymore. Uh, because they feel, rightly or wrongly, that the public is not interested. Well, I, I think the public is very interested. I think I think it's very encouraging to see pilots now and you know government people coming out with their own reports. So it shows that little by little, um, you know, whatever censorship was exercised over the witnesses is is fading. That that people are are now having the courage to come out with their own, you know, even scientists, you know, very encouraging to see people of the stature of uh, Dr. Michio Kaku, you know, coming out and saying there is a phenomenon that should be studied. Um, very encouraging to see the, the reaction to Leslie Keane's book, you know, that um, 
the there, there is a change in public opinion. People Leslie are, King's are book ready. Being, her book being uh, the I don't remember the exact title of the book, but it's it's about reports by pilots and uh, and, and government officials. Yes. No. Um, the uh, so that all those are good good signs, but what I think we contribute. Um, you know, Chris and I in, in uh, Wonders in the Sky is a series of data points that have not have been missing from from the study of the phenomenon. I mean, w how far back does it go? What are the patterns? And also, if if the phenomenon has been with us since antiquity, you know, I mean, remember the first case in our book is 1500 BC, you know, in Egypt. And um, then what does it say about these things being from another planet? You know, I, I, it may be more complex than that. I'm speaking with Jacques Vallée. He's the co-author with Chris Aubach of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times. My name is Michael Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. My guest is Jacques Vallée. He's the co-author with Chris Aubeck of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times, published in paperback by Karcher Penguin. And if you'd like more information about Jacques' work, you can go to the website jacquesvallée.com. And Vallée is V-A-L-L-E.com. -E Jacques, of course, is J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, jacquesvallée.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Jack, one of the things that happens in these stories, uh, I notice the devil appears, the devil comes up. What about that, the, the appearance of the devil? Well, in all those stories, um, then as well as now, the, the witnesses don't, don't know what they have seen. And very often, it's a very traumatic experience for them. I still investigate you know, in the field myself. Very often when I get there, the the, the first thing that the witnesses say is, you know, you, you're a scientist, you're going to explain this to me. You'll tell me it's a new prototype or it's a new helicopter or it's a new, you know, it's a new thing. And I have to tell them, look, I, I don't know what it is any more than you do. So, especially in the old, you know, in the uh, medieval times and so on, people were grasping for explanations, just like now we, you know, the first explanation that comes to mind now is these are aliens from another planet because we're discovering new planets and, you know, it makes sense. We have all these science fiction movies about uh, aliens from other planets. So, and it certainly, you know, it is one of the hypotheses we have to consider. There must be life throughout the universe. Our science is not complete. There must be ways for them to come here. The problem is that it doesn't explain all the facts. So um, people, uh, you know, then and now 
are tempted to look for other explanations, especially when the observations don't seem to make any sense. You know, when something just appears suddenly in your bedroom, it looks like a being that may be threatening or maybe, uh, you know, may 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 seem to be um, uh, benevolent. So people have naturally uh, invented explanations that these were devils or these were angels or these were ghosts or these were anything of the kind. Um, that's where the, the folklore about the little people, you know, the elves and the leprechauns and so on comes from in Celtic countries. But you find that that kind of uh, story is, is there in every culture. Every culture has a, a name for it, whether you, whether in Hawaii or in in Russia or anywhere else. In the, especially in in Christian countries, in medieval times, it was tempting to say that uh, this was a devil. Uh, there are a number of cases where the church conducted an investigation and uh, concluded that it was, in fact, not the devil, but you know, angelic beings, or even the Virgin Mary. And we have a few cases of that type in, in, in the book, where the, the ultimate explanation to the culture, to the local culture, was that this was div of divine origin. It still doesn't explain what it was. You know, and if, uh, if it's a devil, we still have to understand the propulsion system. You know, so, so this doesn't explain anything. It just puts a, a, a name on it and, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a tentative explanation. Well, some of these cases, I mean, I think of the very well-known ones, the case of Joan of Arc, who eventually was put, you know, burned at the stake. And she was seeing uh, beings light. She talked about seeing light and and talking to, to seeing uh, beings close to her and hearing their language they spoke to her yes now that that's an interesting case because it it's not in the book um you know the the, the book is like any good book it's it the result of a tension between uh, two different streams of of methodology chris is a wonderful scholar chris Orbeck. Uh, is much younger than I am, and in part this book is sort of a generational transition. Chris is going to write many more you know, wonderful books about this. The, we disagreed on some of the cases, and we disagreed about Joan of Arc. I wanted to include it for exactly the reason you, you said. You know, here is someone who's had a major impact on human history. Yes. And... Um, the, it, it seems that the, the stimulus for her transformation into a great political and military leader was her encounter with beings of light, essentially, and her hearing their voices. How, Chris pointed out that there was no aerial object there. And, you know, we argued for a long time over the internet about this and because it's a sort of a test case and um, I, I finally you know agreed with him that it's not it should not be in the book because it's not clearly you know a an, an, an unexplained aerial phenomenon because he, his point was if we do this then we have to include all the cases where people have heard voices and seen beings of light and which is a very legitimate area 
but it's not it's not exactly you know the the, the mission our mission in this particular book uh, you'll have to in, in include you know a lot of religious visions a lot of ghost reports a lot of things that are sort of in the border you know in in the second uh, part of the book uh, we've included some of the outstanding cases that we had rejected uh, for example um, you know the um, uh, the star of bethlehem you know is in in many ufo books it's listed as a ufo well we think there are astronomical explanations for the star of bethlehem and uh, you know the manna from heaven for example in the bible uh, is also mentioned by many authors as being related to aliens or ufos and so on and we we didn't think that was that was appropriate so Obviously, we we only put a few of these cases because there are, for every case that we kept, there were five or ten cases that we rejected, or that we put aside because they were not really in the same, uh, you know, in, within our mission. Uh, the I must say we worked very hard on this, you know, for six years, weekends, evenings, and so on. Uh, I met uh, with Chris once in at a, a conference in Portugal, at the university. Uh, and it was just w wonderful to, to work with Chris uh, and uh, just a wonderful experience because we kept discovering things that were not in the literature, were, were just absolutely wonderful. Uh, you know, Benvenuto Cellini saw a UFO. Uh, Michelangelo saw a triangle with three lights in the sky and painted it. Now, the painting is unfortunately lost. But uh, it was, you know, recorded that he had seen this and painted it. So, you know, going back to Stephen Hawking, it, it, it's hard to say that these were all crackpots. You know, when Michelangelo was so impressed by this triangle he saw in the sky that he made a painting of it. Yes. There, there was a, a, an interesting story about um, this 4 November 1697, Mecklenburg and Hamburg, Hamburg Germany, two wheels in the sky and, and this was apparently well documented so you talk about that one there were a number of these cases uh where we have engravings and um thanks to a scholar in in france we were able to track down exactly where these engravings were and what their history was because obviously when you when you have old engravings if you don't know the context, if you don't know who did it, what else he did, why he did this particular thing, you you can, you know, you can uh, speculate as long as you want. So we we tracked this one down. There are num It's typical of a number of cases where uh, people saw something over a city where a, a large number of people saw something and felt that it was important enough to be to be recorded. I mean, remember, in those days, um, you know, communication was not what it, what it is now. There were no uh, newspapers uh, the way we, we know now. There was, uh, it was uh, expensive to keep a record of something like this and, and print it. So uh, these are you know, typical of the most important cases that were were recorded, and uh, it shows again that this is not vague folklore; that this has a, a root in, uh, you know, in 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 reality. 
the um, this, the story of, of Sheriff McCoy and Robert Good, who were patrolling the highways near Angleton, Texas, when they observed a huge object, uh, and it flew within 30 meters of them, and they cast a large shadow when it interpreted, intercepted the moonlight. They felt a heat wave that scared them, prompted them to hastily drive away. Uh, what happened? What, what, what is well, the, the reason I mentioned that report, which was in the 50s in, in Texas, yes. is that it... Actually, since 1965. Uh, it's a, a parallel to... Um, I, I, you know, we, we mentioned it as, as a parallel to ancient cases where the same thing happened, where people, for example, in, in the 16th century in Hamburg uh, saw an object that came close to them and was so hot that they... They fled. They tried to get away, get away from it, and this could not be, you know, plasma. It couldn't be a meteor. It couldn't be a comet. I mean, this was. So the, the, we we find the same kinds of physical descriptions. Uh, we you know bur burned uh, spots in the in the vegetation. We find vegetation destroyed. We find uh, heat. And paralysis of, of witnesses, and all of that in in our 500 cases before 1879. The same thing that we find in, in the literature, you know, uh, of modern UFOs. You, you listed that you'd come to, after this, you'd, you'd come to four major conclusions. Um, uh, one being throughout history, unknown phenomena variously described as prodigies or celestial wonders have made a major impact on the senses and the imagination of the individuals who witnessed them. Yes. Um, this, is, this is not just fairy stories. This is something that has shaped our civilization, our, I should say our civilizations, plural. Um, you know, in the Middle East, in China, in Japan, in the Roman Empire, in Western Europe. And then what's fascinating also as, as we got closer to modern times is, you know, 15th, 16th century, you begin to see cases in the Americas, you know, the conquistadores in, in uh, Latin America, in, in South America, Columbus, you know, uh, Cabral. I mean, the, the, uh, the great sailors described in, as they were sailing to the Americas, described objects, uh, lights in the sky, where they, there really shouldn't be a light in the sky. Yes. I'm speaking with Jacques Vallée, and he's the co-author with Chris Aubeck of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times. And it's published by Tartar Penguin. And if you'd like more information, you can go to the website jacquesvallee.com. Valet is V-A-L-L-E-E-E, V-A-L-L-E-E.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions.
guest is Jacques Vallée, and he's the author, along with Chris Aubeck, of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times. We were talking about the the, the conclusions that you'd reached after the study. Um, and number two was every epic has interpreted the phenomena in its own terms, often in a specific religious or political context. People have projected their worldview, fears, fantasies, and hopes into what they saw in the sky. They still do so today. Yes, and uh, today, of course, we put it in uh, spacecraft term because that's where science is. Where the, that's you know the most exciting thing in our technology is uh, space exploration, and that's you know that's legitimate. Uh, again, in the book, we do not propose any hypothesis. But at the heart of any hypothesis about UFOs, you have to ask the question of you know, relationship to extraterrestrial life. Um, if you know, these things have been with us throughout history, but the maneuvers they perform and the physical characteristics indicate that they are, if they can do that in our environment, they can certainly go into space. And there is a, there must be a technology at the heart of it. It's the the mistake we make is that, and the mistake that has been made, you know, throughout history is to look for simplistic explanations. It's the devil, you know. It's the Virgin Mary. It's, um, you know, it's uh, some magician in the Himalayas. It's, uh, you know, it's a spacecraft from Mars. You know, it's yes. a spacecraft from Venus. And uh, these are all simplistic explanations, and, and they. You know, they sound good uh, up to a point, and then they fall, they fall flat, because they, we we don't have a, a complete hypothesis that we can demonstrate to the satisfaction of, of of you know of science of, of rational science that would account for all the things that that are in this book. You know, and we just don't. Uh, it's not just a physical phenomenon. It has physiological implications. It has pathological implications. It it can hurt people. It can heal people. It has psychological implications. It poses questions about our history on this planet. It poses questions about our consciousness. You know, and uh, it's not a simple problem. Number three, although many details of these events have been forgotten or pushed under the colorful rug of history, their impact has shaped human civilization in important ways. If you read the basic religious texts of, of, uh, of mankind, very often they start with visitation from the sky. I mean, this is the oldest story of mankind. Um, I quote at the beginning of the book, uh, Professor Coliano at the uh, University of Chicago said that there was immense, you know, material, religious, anthropological material about traveling to the stars. You know, that the, the soul is a space capsule, you know. And uh, the uh, that's a, a quote from Professor Coliano that, uh, again, it's the oldest story of man. You know, things coming from the stars and people having the, 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 the feeling or the experience of their consciousness traveling away from the earth and, and meeting other forms of consciousness. So we're not dealing with uh, just a few odd stories here and there. You know, it, it's not just a collection of, of cute, you know, old legends. Yes. Uh, by the way, in, in the book, we've stayed away from 
you know, when we talk to to friends and people, they say, oh, yes, well, you should look at the Hopi, uh, you know, culture, because uh, the Hopi have a tradition about things from the sky, and the Chinese have a tradition about things. So, but, you know, in the, of course, India has the Vimana, you know, there are these traveling objects in the sky carrying the gods. Yes. But there is nothing we can do with that. But we've excluded all of that from this book. We wanted a date, you know, as as exact as possible, a place, and if possible, the name of a witness, you know, and a quote somewhere. So we we demanded um, something very very precise to locate the, because otherwise you're you're dealing with things that are in fact too too general and too vague. And then number four being the lessons drawn from these ancient cases can be usefully applied to the full range of aerial phenomena that are still reported and remain unexplained by contemporary science. That's what keeps me going. I mean, that's why we can now go back to contemporary sightings. And by the way, you know, the phenomenon keeps happening. It's just not not reported very well by the newspapers. But uh, I continue to do field research and to meet people. I was in, in France three weeks ago, spoke to a witness in a suburb of Paris, who saw an object just passing by her building and she took two pictures of it. Well, um, going, you know, having the, uh, the, the knowledge from the, the older cases helps us look at the new cases in a more informed way and, and maybe less, uh, we're less uh, tempted to jump to, to uh, simplistic conclusions. In the, in the conclusion of the book, you have a list of 12 important questions. Maybe we can go through those. Uh, the first one, how homogeneous is this chronology of 500 cases? Well, it's only homogeneous to the extent that our criteria, which we disclosed, by the way. I mean, we were very religious about disclosing how we did this, what our sources were, what our methods were. So it's only homogeneous by virtue of the... Uh, the standards that we apply to the material. Yes. Number two, isn't the chronology biased by your own cultural backgrounds? Well, uh, undoubtedly it is. I mean, Chris is is um, a young Englishman living in Spain, and, uh, you know, I'm an older Frenchman living in California. Uh, we are very familiar with Western cultures. We've been trained, you know, in in, uh, in the humanities from a Western point of view. I don't read Mandarin. I don't read Japanese. I don't read uh, ancient uh, Egyptian. So we, we're going to need help. And obviously we're biased, which means that there is a lot more material, wonderful material that's waiting to come out. I, I, I hope that librarians and uh, historians and other scholars will go back to you know, the manuscripts, correspondence that must be in the attic of many old castles, you yes. know, and, and dig up that kind of thing. Number three, do these cases represent a global phenomenon? They come from every culture and the behavior. I mean, the, the way it is described is different, obviously, in every culture and every part of history, every era. But uh, when you strip away the, the, the cultural filter, the phenomenon is the same. It's, it's very often a light with a, an object, with a physical object, that seems to come from the sky or go back into the sky. Number four, is this all there is? I've already answered that. Yes. No, it's not all there is. It's <laughs> just the beginning. 
And number five, who are the witnesses? The witnesses are a cross-section of the population. Uh, the... Uh, cross-section of the educated population and increasingly so uh, when you get to the Enlightenment where many of the witnesses are professional scientists and astronomers. And it's very sad commentary. Um, we didn't know we were going to discover that very sad commentary on science that you see in the late 19th century sort of censorship and early 20th century censorship com uh, coming to science. Uh, in the uh, 17th and 18th century, scientists were looking, were fighting to get their name associated with the discovery of new, of new things. And they were openly talking about unusual things in the sky. Number six, could all this be simply delusionary? Well, the way to test this, and uh, we did a, a, a test, is to look at a number of parameters, including the duration of the cases, uh, including the, the time of day, including the, the surrounding conditions. And we have enough data here to, to do that and to do that test. And no, it's not delusionary. Number seven, are there general patterns behind the sightings? Well, one of the more interesting patterns is the distribution versus time of, uh, time of day. And the, the cases are at a very low level during the day, but they go up, you know, rapidly uh, at between uh, 6 and 7 p.m., go through a, a maximum shortly before midnight. And then there is a secondary maximum at dawn, just before dawn. And that's a pattern we've seen in every database, every catalog about modern UFOs. Number eight, how physical is the phenomenon? It, it, it is, there is a physical object there. Um, it's very often manifested as a light, but it's more than a light. It's, uh, there appears to be a technology behind the light. It, it, it's capable of maneuvers that are not typical of comets and meteors and aurora and so on. It, it's capable of reversing course, dashing and darting, zigzag patterns, falling in the zigzag, you know, falling leaf motion. All of that suggests a, a physical technology. Number nine, is this relevant to the modern UFO phenomenon? Well, um, obviously it is. Yes. Number 10, why has science ignored this body of data? I think you've already addressed that too. Well, science, you know, scientists have not taken the time to really look at this. And I hope that this book will help in uh, opening... Uh, you know, uh, opening a window there. Number 11, how can the impact on society be characterized? That's for sociologists to do. Uh, sociologists and anthropologists. Uh, um, Dr. Kripal, in his recent book, Authors of the Impossible, has courageously, you know, started to do this, to look back at Charles Ford, to look back at, at uh, ancient cases as well. And number 12, what is the next step? Better documentation. Again, this is a beginning. It's not the end of the study. It's a beginning of the study. Well, there's so much more, Jacques, but we run out of time. I really appreciate your being here. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I've been speaking with Jacques Vallée. He's the author, along with Chris Aubeck, of Wonders in the Sky, Unexplained Aerial Objects from Antiquity to Modern Times, published by Tarcher Penguin in paperback. If you'd like more information, you can go to the website jacquesvallée.com. Valet is V-A-L-L-E, jacquesvallée.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Michael Toms. 
You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3384. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.